From tellmeyourdreams.com, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between finding work that pays the bills and making our work meaningful. The show lives where our personal and professional lives collide, giving all of us the chance to rethink how we live and labor in a work-from-everywhere economy. When you meet Jazz Ampafar, it's tempting to think that she comes from a pedigree, that she was set up for success, that she was destined for greatness. Her ability to captivate an audience on stage at places like TEDx, or her ability to win uh, an entire nation over as she was on the UK's The Apprentice, or even just the way that she has impacted the educational system in the UK and influenced administrators and educators and children in their perspective on what it means for them to be everyday heroes and what it means for them to be positive disruptors in this world. But of course, if you thought that this was a pre-gone conclusion, when you hear the output of who she is now, you would have missed an amazing story, an amazing and unlikely story. Jazz Ampafar did not begin in a position of privilege. In fact, as you begin to hear her story and consider it against your own, I invite you to open up your heart to consider vulnerably the opportunity she's about to offer you, especially in light of the cultural moment we're in around things like Black Lives Matter and systemic racism in this country and beyond. I wanna suggest to you that Jazz has a unique perspective as someone from the outside looking in, but also a very generous one, an invitational one for all of us, regardless of where we stand, to expand our perspective at these dramatic tensions we navigate as we work out the business of creativity. Jazz, could you tell your story about the journey from being born, really, to realizing that being deprived of dreams, like like even dreams was not even a category, to to now where it feels like there's no stopping you, like there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> tell us that. Yeah. Tell us your story. Okay, so yeah, I, I love that where dreams, what it was almost offensive, so out of reach, so so painful to even consider to a place of being alive and driving change that's that's really the story and and I always hesitate because I don't want to like give this I've got a really good like America's Got Talent backstory you know where like all this terrible stuff happened and I hate like doing that as born a poor black child but I was so that's kind of where it starts um I I was um my mum had lots of different relationships with lots of different men I was the result of one of them and that happened to be with a black guy she's white and and so she had a a little brown baby in the UK when in 1970 when that wasn't cool you know it wasn't the thing to do and uh, I went on to have like five other children and ended up living with one of the dads of those um, when I was seven and I really became like the parent the carer for my brother who was six uh, five and then my younger brother who was one and then a baby and then two more babies to the extent where I would, you know, get them up, feed them, um, wash them, try and change their nappy, steal food so they could eat, um, take beatings for them from my my stepdad when he would come back drunk from the pub, be locked in the cellar as punishment for stuff. This was just this was the norm, and I and I really kind of questioned, you know, whether I was allowed to be alive 
whether it was okay for me to to exist because it seemed all the evidence and data I received seemed that I was a burden. In fact, I, I always I always want to ask people what age they were when they realized that adults couldn't be trusted. And when I asked that question, some people described finding out like Father Christmas may or may not be real, depending on who's <laughs> listening, <laughs> or or sort of finding being disappointed by their their dad when you know they realized they didn't know everything. I I was seven. I was seven when I realized that I was alone and that I I needed to not just to look after myself, but also my brothers and later my sister. And so in, on the back of being beaten and being neglected and being just, just, just being tortured as a slave, really, sort of physical abuse and, uh, and certainly mental abuse and a huge neglect, my stepdad started to rape me when I was seven. And that carried on until I ran away from home when I was 11, leaving my brothers and sister there, which is something that would go on to destroy me so much more than the actual act of violence and torture and and abuse. And I um I, I just I remember categorizing adults. I must have done this, I must have been about eight, nine. I worked out there were three categories of adults. Category one, who totally loved you. And in that category I had my granddad who had died, um, and then Mrs. Cook, my teacher, an infant school teacher, who always wore brown and just loved you by looking at you. She was just amazing. And then uh, there were category two adults that, that they didn't, you know, they liked you, they didn't love you, they liked you, but you were a bit of a burden and you were mostly in the way. And that was my grandma, which was the main caregiver before my mum moved out after my granddad died, and teachers at school on the whole. And then there were category three adults and category three adults were either dangerous or idiots or dangerous idiots. And and this was my codifying safety when I was seven. And category three adults were my parents, the adults they brought to the house for drink, drinking games and to, to use substances. But basically any adult that I came across when I was out on the street in the day because we spent a lot of time out on the street. So so everything was about navigating safety of my body, of my babies, of my being as much as I could, which most of the time meant staying as small as possible. And when when I when I left, um, I still came back and I looked after the kids and and I sort of dealt with all the other stuff that kind of fallen by the wayside, like you know being female and being working class and being brown and being all this you know and a kid who then was in foster care and all this stuff, and and it was you know it was devastatingly difficult. And there were and and people say to me now, people say when I speak, people say you're an inspiration, and I say great. What have I inspired you to do? Because part of this is when people see me. And, and say you're brave they're saying you're braver than I am I couldn't do that and but I, they don't know how many times I wanted to die I know that so I, I my response is always to your awesome is I'm awesome by choice because I have done the work I do the work and the work is believing the impossible about your worth and your value when everything about you screams that the truth about you is the limiting stories that you've been force-fed since you can remember. And so there was lots of navigation of, of having to, <laughs> of beyond belief, you know, not being believed and trying to be believed and disclosing and not being believed and constant and, and trying to protect my family when this was happening. When I was 11, the reason I left is because I, I ran away from home. I ended up living with a pimp 
Um, and he was very nice to me, obviously, because that's how you enroll uh, child prostitutes. And and he was he, he was very kind of, you know, he did everything I needed, everything that Mrs. Cook had done, made me feel like I belonged, made me feel valued. You know, like, yeah, schools often could learn a lot from you know, that, that how you deal with someone if you need their loyalty, rather than just expecting them to student up and be there. You meet them where they are. And that's what he did. And then he took me shopping and I was standing in this dressing room on my own he'd sent me into this dressing room to try some outfits on uh, and I was holding an outfit up and it wasn't a dress it was like lingerie and 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 it wasn't appropriate for a child and I was I, I was breaking down because school wasn't looking for me my parents weren't looking for me I was on my own and then as I stood there holding this dress this like from nowhere from nowhere I just got this moment of silence it was like everything stopped like the world like in a film it's like and it just stops and I got this really clear sentence looking at this outfit. There is no way that Mrs. Cook would wear this. <laughs> the teacher always wore brown, long sleeves, long <laughs> She wouldn't wear it. I hadn't seen her for seven years, but it didn't matter. It was enough. I dropped the outfit. I ran out the change room. I ran across the road into a police station and I slammed my hands on the counter and I said, I demand the right to remain silent because that's what I thought you did <laughs> in police station. So too many American cop films. So, so, and then I got taken into foster care and ran away and lived on the streets and loads of stuff happened. But, but what was interesting is that, you know, leadership isn't what you do. It's what happens when you're not even in the room. That was, that was like seven years, you know, five, five six years after I'd even seen her. And yet she saved my life. Mrs. Cook. Yeah. Yeah, because what she had done, she had this like, you know, she just, she dreamed for me before I could even acknowledge what a dream was. And she didn't need me to get it. She didn't need me to stand with it. She didn't need me to understand. It didn't matter. She she was, it was, she was big enough to be able to do it without me. You know, and, and I keep saying this about, we can do, with kids in particular, but with people, you can do things to people, to others, you can do things for others, or you can do things with others. And and to others is is like sympathy. It's next to useless. For others is good if the others know you're for mm. them. <laughs> but with, oh, I mean, that's like, you know, it's it's I was a I was a broken little girl. And and it was messy and it was dirty and it was complex. And 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 I was unfortunately held accountable for my own disadvantage so much. And yet she said, I don't care about that. I, I see you. I see you. And she, and she just walked with me. And so to the extent where a frightened, alone 11-year-old girl can use her embedding of faith in her to, to jump free from a pimp. I mean, I, I have no explanation for it. But when I've looked back, and obviously I've been through therapy, you don't get to get be this awesome sitting on your sofa, crossing your fingers, hoping it turns out. You know, I've done the work for crying out loud. But I, looking back, you know, that there is no other way I can describe it other than people dreaming for me and with me, even when I wasn't involved with it myself, even when I couldn't say yes, I couldn't buy in. That has made an impenetrable mark on me. So let, let me reflect back a little of what I'm hearing. So I'm hearing... Uh, three categories of adults when you were young: uh, the the dangerous threes, yeah. uh, the benign twos, and the heroic ones, or maybe the guiding ones. Who yeah. knows? And that there's a sense in which there was a combination. It sounds like of Mrs. Cook making the impression, the impact, the investment somehow in you in such a way where at a critical moment you became awake and you began to participate with what she saw in you. 
and and what I'm hearing also is a sense, and this is extraordinary because you and I have been friends for so long. When you use that phrase that you what, you felt like your strategy for survival was to become as small as possible. Yeah. When, knowing you now, <laughs> your personality is not as small as possible. Um, it's it's extraordinary. It's it, I mean, it's why there's people like lining up to just be around your influence. Like you're Mrs. Cook now to so many. And I know there's listeners who are hearing this right now, even as adults who are either, they're feeling that their strategy of being as small as possible is their way forward or they're brought back by your story to their story and they can, they can, they can probably find some similar plot points. And, and in all of that, you've made such a shift and, I can't help but think of our situation here in the United States where um, mm. uh, it's not just a U.S. problem, but it certainly is a U.S. problem around um, systemic racism and uh, white privilege. And it's funny, you and I had a conversation that I we need clarity. I'm going to speak like a buffoon in a minute and you can, uh, help, you can help me out as you help everyone else is listening but aren't going to be buffoonish to figure but I'm going to help you my the fellow buffoons who are listening uh, uh, who may or may not be white you will you will be given a gift here in a second but for as someone especially from the UK who has an outside perspective on the US and and even setting aside political biases as much as we can resist it mm-hmm. um, what I'm hearing in your narrative is like that that strategy become as small as possible um, I've heard that strategy from my black friends I've heard from people who've said Oh no, this is what you do. Like I was in a conversation with uh, a woman whose brother got in a lot of trouble. Um, he happens to be black, or they're the black family. And the brother called home to the dad in Georgia. And the dad in Georgia said, uh, even though you were wronged, even though you were slighted, even though this was entirely all wrong in every way, the strategy for you is to not complain. Because even if you win the, this little battle, you will lose the war. They will target you. They will come at you. They will get you in all these different ways. And that and this sounded like a cultural bias to to strategize towards small as possible. So as you as you look at our world in our uh, in the U.S. and Black Lives Matter and all that's going on here, what is your perspective on our cultural strategy of people of color choosing? To go in, the, choosing a shift from small as possible to no, no, we're standing differently. Do you have any reflections on that that you could share for us? Yeah, I think the thing about playing small is that it works. You know, it it kind of it can protect you. you. It just comes at such a great cost because you give up who you are and who you could potentially be, and you start being the human the world needs you to be rather than the human that you were designed to be. And and so it requires you to 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 give yourself away, and and sometimes people will go to great lengths in order to avoid, you know, fear, judgment, worry. I mean, we've I know we're on that. There's different sides to every argument, but everybody knows what it is to feel scared, to feel shame, to feel guilt, to to want something better for others than they had for themselves, to 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 want to build up their kids but feel that they they don't know how. Everyone knows those feelings, and and I think. You know, partly for me, kind of navigating my journey being brown in, in a way, not, I'm not sounding brown. I think I've had so many phone calls where people have met me and then gone, oh, in fact, some people have actually said, oh, you don't sound black. And I'm like, 
thank you. You don't sound like you would say that. For a job, but right. there we go. Well, but 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 that's partly because you've learned skills. Like you've learned. No, it's no, it's not the skills. It's a choice. It's a. Cho- I here's the deal, right? The truth is, and I can't. I, I you know, I, my my heart rips for for the navigate. I mean, honestly, it hurts for the navigate. It, I hurt for everyone who is trying to navigate this. For people of color who who can't be at home in in the country that is their home and for people who aren't of color who are terrified of saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and making a mistake and so say nothing and then feel bad about that and then feel a bit disgruntled because it's like look but I'm I've got good intentions but now I'm under scrutiny and then they get hurt and then people of color get hurt and it's just I want change more than I want to be right. I want change more than I want retribution, justice, equality, fairness. I want change. I want change in people's minds and hearts. And so I have an option. I have a choice myself. And my choice is to, where I can, stand in empathy and engage with people. That's my choice. It's why I made friends with people who are different to me. I worked in, I always say when I was in prison, when I was visiting a prison, (laughs) I came across some prisoners and they were all like, they looked like they could rip your head off these guys. It was terrifying. And the woman I was with said, you better sit here behind the table because there's no cameras in this room. And I'm like, what the heck? There's no, what? Do I need to, why should there be cameras? So anyway, the guys come in and the first guy is like a square. He's a square, right? He's he's Russian. Turns out he can barely speak English. He just fancied to come for a walk and nobody dared tell him to get back in his cell. So he's in there. The next guy is this black guy and he's got like a, a gun tattooed on his neck and gold teeth. My unconscious bias is off the shazang. I'm like, they're going to kill me. And then the next guy is this girl with like bleach blonde hair who's clearly coming down. I mean, I know what it looks like when you're coming down off, off drugs. He's clearly like coming down off something. He's twitching. And he, and I, I literally sit in that room and I think I am going to die. If it all kicks off, this woman is going to be no use in a twin set and pearls at 70. She's about 70. It's going to be me versus these three. I've got no chance. And I'm sat there and I can't remember why I'm there. I'm literally, I cannot remember why I am in the room. And it was to talk about... Um, education and why you choose education when you get more money for working in the kitchens and blah, blah. So, and I'm saying to myself, get a grip, jazz, get a grip, jazz, get a grip. I'm slapping myself in my head. And and I say, find some common ground. And I look at these three guys and I think I would cross the road to avoid you based on my bias around what you look like. There is nothing I have in common with you. You are the epitome of them and us. I mean, there's nothing. And I'm like, well, you're in the room with them. So get a grip, Jazz, get a grip, find some common ground. So I look at them and I say say to them, why would you do education when you get paid more for catering? And the guy who's coming down off drugs, he says, um, I can't read. I don't want my son to turn out like me. So I need to learn. And I think, oh, good gravy. I have everything in common mm. with these guys. They're all human. That means they all burp and they all fart and they all have sleepless nights worrying about someone they love. And they all think that they want more, but but fail at every term and, and they feel like they're not good enough. I have everything in common with these guys. And I, and I talked about choice and said, you know, after what you've gone through, and this is this is the most important thing. It's you entice people with empathy, then engage them in a conversation, then enroll them to your way of thinking. People want to go straight to enrolling. Right, you're wrong. Let's list the way yours wrong. Yeah, yeah, we're all wrong. Yeah, okay, everyone's does. But but that is not the way. You don't buy loyalty. You don't get people to listen by smacking them over the head with a brick. I mean, it just it's not how humans respond. I'm not talking about submission. I'm talking about gifting. I'm talking about being able to stand in the space with people who you are different to, not with people who are different to you. 
and and I I can only speak about for me I've been this have had this curse of kind of being brown but being in being brought up in foster care and having my parents all be white and then being working class at heart but now having a very middle class life because I've had success and and then kind of being in the middle all the time and not belonging anywhere but it's been a gift and when I sat with those guys in the prison and I said to them after everything you've been through with completely within your rights to be bitter twisted and angry and and the black guy looked at me and said but and I said there is no but that, that's you're just completely within your that, there's no but who's who am I to there's no but there is an and and it's a choice and I wish this wasn't true and I wish it I, I, for myself I wish the world owed me a living and I could just stay angry and that would be it. But there's a choice. And, and it's not, it's like a hula hoop that you have to push away from you to, to even notice that there are some other hoops on the, the little edge of it. But and, and you need someone else to shine a light on those hoops. And you need someone else to grease you up like the tiger in Madagascar 3 to even get through those hoops. But there is a choice. It just it's just that the choice you're making is the most obvious one that everyone else makes. And when I saw the first bit, because I couldn't watch it all, of the video of George Floyd, you know, who I was looking at, I was looking at the guy who was standing, the officer who was standing while everything was going on behind him with the people who kind of, it's kind of like confirmation bias says I've made the choice to be right and I can't do anything other than stick to this choice. That's where I, I hurt. Because if we can't consider the possibility that we might not have the whole story that, that when we see looting and we go, well, that's not right. Well, it's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, of course it is. As is judging someone who turns up in a vehicle that's brown. I mean, all of it's crazy. But I, I have navigated change in people's hearts and minds where people would believe it to be impossible because I've been able to stand in empathy. And I don't do it. And empathy isn't sympathy. And empathy isn't making it okay. But until, like, lots of people over here, lots of people I see over there when I see interviews and stuff, and I've I've got an um, unconscious bias course that I do, and it's called Black by Popular Demand, which people always correct but to back by. It's like, no, it's supposed to be a joke. Black by Popular Demand. And it's, uh, it's unpicking our own unconscious bias. And everyone who comes on that course starts by listing the ways they have been a victim of unconscious bias. And I have to stop them and go, no, this is about unpicking our own unconscious bias. <laughs> This is about like mine. I'm going to share mine. You're going to share yours. And we're going to decide whether we want to leave with what we came in with. That's how it works. And, and I think maybe, I, maybe I'm privileged. Of course I'm privileged. I'm certainly not white privileged, but I've certainly got white adjacent privilege. You know, I, I, always, I always think I, 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 I'm privileged in so many ways. I have food in the fridge and light and heat and power and internet and friends and family. And there's, there's so much that I, that I don't have to engage in that I had to navigate before. It, it's almost impossible not to be celebratory all the time because I know what it is to have nothing. But it's still the choice I take to stand with people in the way people stood with me because that is why I am not a freaking criminal. That, I would be such a great drug dealer. I would be a, I'd, I could run such a great cartel. I have got a natural criminal mindset. If I didn't have morals, if people hadn't interrupted my trajectory, I'd be killing it in the criminal world. And I'm not because people gave me the time of day when I, people met me where I was. And you know, when you, when we shout in it, oh, you know, you're, I get it. I get the anger. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's per, it's a choice. And if, if that's the route we want to go, but I, I just I just have these images all the time. And one of them came from, is it Genesee? Is that a place? Genesee. So, sounds like Tennessee, but it's got a G. And there was a there was a white police officer and he went in. It's a video and he went in. There's like black yeah. protesters. 
And he says, right, I'd love this protest to be a parade. You know, Ev, I'm with you. Every officer you see, we're all with you. Like, we love you. That guy over there, he hugs people. We, we, what do you need? Tell us what you need. We are with you. And then this beautiful thing happened where there must have been about 12 voices in unison and then more people joined in and, and, and the protesters started chanting, walk with us, walk with us. And he said, okay, let's go. And they walked. And as these black protesters and these white police officers turned that protest into a parade, I, I, that, that's what with looks like. And that's why when people say I'm not racist, it's like, you don't, you know, I haven't murdered anyone today. You don't get a medal for that. That's like bare minimum baseline. And then being an ally is exhausting. It's a huge, you have to take the struggle on as if it was yours. That's a huge amount of work. But there's a journey in between. And what the story I want to be able to tell of COVID, of George Floyd, of this experience, the story I want to be able to tell is that I did everything I could with the resources I had available. Because this story, this 2020 story is a story that we are going to be telling for the rest of our lives. And it better be a good one. I, I don't want to be telling a story of fear and failure my whole freaking life. I don't want that. I want a story that, that the future jazz, that 2025 jazz will look back and go, you know what, that's exactly what I would have done. And, and I feel compelled to live like that. I feel compelled. You know, one of the reasons why it was so important in my mind to, to really start this new season of Converge and to shift from just like, as you know, the show used to be about for people who make things and then make money from those things. And we haven't aired for, for a while and, and now we're back. And, and it was just critical to me that we shift the, the tension, that it wasn't just a tension about like a, a commerce tension of how do I be creative and then bring it to market, but to a more a more pressing tension around, well, when COVID happened, I thought it was going to be around, oh, when our personal lives intersect with our professional lives. And there's a sense in which that's true, but I think what you're pointing to is actually a, a, an even more important tension of of transitioning from this mode of surviving to thriving, this notion yeah. that people could actually... I loved how you put it, like for understandable and good reasons, people are protesting. It's appropriate on some level, a hundred percent. And even with, with visceral anger and all like it's at the very least, we have to pause and say, it's understandable. Uh, you cannot not understand if you, if you have any sense of empathy of what's going on, why people are responding the way they're responding. Um, and you might even have a massive complaint, like why aren't more responding with the same sort of upset? Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I'm hearing is is a shift that you have you you've made it across a chasm where you can both hold the reality of that, and I loved your use of and 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 find a way forward that offers hope, offers possibility, offers something that isn't just how do I how do I get through this moment to have another breath in my lungs, but to actually enjoy the breath maybe someday <laughs> to maybe uh, live into something. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about, about thriving? I, yeah, I have like stages that I've mapped of my own journey. And so much of this is kind of personal. personal. I'm so surprised when it resonates with anyone else because we all love to think we're so unique that our experience and our struggles and our challenges and our adversity are, are designed especially for us from this unique connection and collection of feelings when actually we're so boringly textbook normal. I mean, everyone feels this, but, but I'm still constantly surprised by this whole 
journey for me there's in my life what i've seen is that there are stages there's suffer survive thrive being alive and driving change and what we tend to do is that we want to go from a place of suffering to driving change that's like putting a plaster on a gaping wound because until you if you want to if you want to lead you know a revolution others children you you can teach what you know but you can only recreate what you already are so do the work be more awesome for crying out loud because people people are watching and learning be more awesome you know i'm a parent i live with video cameras it feels like in the house i have my words quoted back to me all the time i have the words that my grandma used to say quoted back to me and she died before they were born so i have no idea how they know what she used to say but it, it's just this whole thing of that journey. And for me, I spent a long time in suffer where I was justifiably hurt and angry, hateful, small, in pain, hiding. When I was a kid, my one of the things my stepdad used to do is lock me in the cellar. Um, and the cellar was damp. It's not like a basement. It's like a stone floor, dark foundations of the house where they used to pour coal in Victorian times. There's a great outside, you'd pour coal down and that's the only light. It's pitch black apart from the light from the grate in the street and it's there's rats and it's dark and it's cold and it's frightening and uh that would be my punishment for whatever just existing and and i used to scream scream and fight and be so i remember being pushed down the steps and falling and trying i don't want any of my body to touch the cold wet damp stone but i'm falling so i can't control it and i I'm hurting and I'm bleeding, but I don't see it because it's dark. So I'm just holding where it hurts and rocking and just regressing, really, what I know now. And I would be kept down there. But they'd forget about me or, you know, my brother would let me out later or, or invariably their mates would come around for drinking sessions and then they'd open the door and let me out then. And it would be a show and, you know, I'd be laughed at and ridiculed and then I'd be allowed to leave the room. And there was a long time where being put in that cellar was the worst thing that could happen to me. And it was so terrifying. But then it shifted because the worst thing that could happen was the door opening after I'd been in the cellar because I got so accustomed to being in there that the frightening thing was having to come out into the light. You know, I was I was dirty and, and messy and I felt shameful. And I didn't know what was going to be waiting for me. I would rather stay there than come out. And that's that's the double-edged sword of suffering, justifiably angry, justifiably the world owes me. And, and and the the kind of victimhood that was forced upon me and that I continued to live in just didn't serve me. It served me when I was surviving. But if surviving is the highest thing you can aim for, and that's one step up from suffering. Like if you breathe, you're surviving. I've seen people fighting over toilet roll. I mean, come on, you, no one's in your ass with, you know, t- telling you to get out. No one, you're not trying to navigate the ocean with in a boat with your kids. We, we, we're just at home. You know, I, I, I know people have died. I know that. But for a lot of people who haven't been touched by that sadness and grief, this is a massive inconvenience. It is not the end of the world. And so during this time, to stay in suffer is to hand over any agency you have to redefine, not rebuild. Why would you rebuild a life that nearly killed you the first time around? Why would you rebuild a life where you're working all the time and you, you, your partner hates your job because you're never there? Why would you rebuild a life where you don't know what's happening in your kids' lives because you've got to do that last email? Why would you rebuild that to redefine a life lived on your terms, in alignment with your why? What? That's what we want to do. And so surviving will get us through the day. Surviving will be breathing. Surviving is, is still focusing on, on getting through the day. But one up from surviving is thriving. And that's where you can take your hands down from around your eyes and you're actually able to stand in the complexity that is now and not feel like you want to run. 
you're actually able to engage, you're actually able to turn to other people and recognize the human condition in yourself and others. And in that space, the very thing that you thought was the worst thing you had to hide. And the, when I did my TED talk, that was meant to be just a nice, easy talk on failure. I wasn't going to share all that stuff. I wasn't going to talk. about. That's like stripping off on stage. And yet the very thing I was most afraid and ashamed of and scared of people knowing is the very thing that gave people agency. Because I stood and said, yeah, I'm vulnerable. Yep. Uh, yes, I am scared. I don't always know if, I've, if I'm good enough. Yep. That's how I feel. And, and in doing so, the thriving kicked in. And I thought thriving was the highest and best thing that could ever happen. But then I found what it was to be alive, where you're actually <laughs> like existing with this real, this real peace. You know you're doing, you know you're living into your values. You know that your, your relationships and, and what you do with your time and yourself is in alignment. You you don't treat well-being like a tick box exercise. It's not all spas and cake. It's actually living a life you don't want to escape from. It's 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 being alive. And then and then you realize the choice you have because this is all a choice. You can stay and suffer. Lots of people do that. You can stay and survive. People are very well mildly happy and survive. You can thrive. But if you're thriving and other people need that, then how is you thriving? really helping. How's that signposting really helping? Driving change. That's where you take someone else around the she rose journey, as I like to call it, because she rose, you know, and, and that driving change, you don't, you don't get there from slapping a plaster on and then going out and trying to help others. You do, you engage, you be, and, and then you can drive change. And I, I, I love I love that people want to, and then people kind of feel like, well, what can I do? I'm just one, or, you know, I, I get organic bananas, so surely I'm contributing <laughs> in some way. And it's like, yes, well done for all that. Here is your round of applause and your several accolades. Yes, you're amazing. And there's always higher and better, so choose. Don't If, you, if you're not ready, it's totally okay, but own it. Don't blame it on an external loci of control. Oh, I, I'm, I live in this area. I've got no money. I've got too much money. I'm too black. I'm too white. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. It's raining. Just own that you're not brave enough. Because when you are, when you find the energy just to be 2% braver than you are now, it will be an easier transition into the human you are destined to be if you don't hold on to it. So, so I kind of feel like my journey is, is going through that. And, and even within COVID, you know, you, it's not a linear journey. You can go in and out of things imposter syndrome plays into it quite a lot and 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 then value and worth and 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 comparison you know comparing your front stage your backstage with everyone else's front stage on social media all of it all of it ties into keeping you small playing it small and and it's a choice and it, and it's not that i want a huge empire maybe i do i just don't want to build it I'm quite lazy like that it, it's not that i want to cause a revolution of any kind although i'd love to be part of a revolution but it is that i want to I want I want to I want to live a life that is worthy of the stories of the people who have stood with me at different times in my life when they didn't need to. I, I play I play a clip. There's a clip when I do this workshop and it's a woman. She's American, actually. Jane Godley, Goodley, someone who did this thing with brown eyes and blue eyes. There's a documentary on it. She separated her kids anyway to, to do discrimination. And she's been all over the world doing the same activities. And she separates people into brown and blue eyes, right, all the time. And there's this woman in the English one, a very beautiful English woman, lives in a village, don't you know? And she's a school teacher. And she's about 15. She's blonde haired. She's got blue eyes. So she's standing having tea with the blue eyed people. And she starts talking about this kid in her class. And she says these words. I've got this child in my class, right? Half caste child. Very pretty. Very pretty. 
and she fell over. Now, she scraped all her face and all her face was scraped and underneath the, the skin, it was, it was pink. Now, did I expect it to be black? I don't know. And, and I say to people, can you watch a clip without judgment? They all say, yeah. And I play the clip and they all start making that judgment sound, which clearly says they can't turn the judgment off. And then I say, what do you notice? And they say, she's racist. And I say, no, no, that's judgment. Tell me what you notice. She's ignorant. No, no, that's judgment. Tell me what you notice. And someone will say, she's got blonde hair. I'm like, good. What else do you notice? And what we get to is what this, what she's trying to do is she's trying to get agreement. She's saying something. It's like, does anyone else think this? Am I daft for thinking this? Is this wrong that I think this? But every time she's tried to say anything in this village where there are no brown people every time she's tried to engage in a conversation someone has shouted her down for being racist and ignorant and here's my question if she was five years old and she was in your class and she went outside and came running in and said miss miss sam's fallen over and she scraped all her face and it's not even black underneath it's actually pink just like mine what would you do and people say I would use it as a teaching point and I'm like hopefully you'd help Sam who is bleeding out in the sand pit but once you've done that yeah that would be a great teaching point so what's the difference and here's where it's complex and dirty and messy and hard what's the difference between that woman as a five-year-old and that woman as a 55-year-old the difference is she should know better well what if no one has ever given her the time or energy or empathy to sit with her and have a conversation even if it meant being shouted down I am not advocating that the victim or the the, the minorities and oppressed should teach people I'm not advocating anything. I just want change. And, and I feel like in this time where so many people who've never listened and, and, and the marginalization I experience on a disappointing day-to-day -day basis, at this time when people are actually saying, help us, we don't know what to do or say, and I think I'm getting it wrong and I feel a bit aggrieved that I'm even having to engage with it. This is the time when I can actually step forward into empathy and choose, because it would drive me mad if I did it with everyone, and choose who I'm going to sit and have a conversation with. Because one day in the future, when they're faced with someone else, they might not have the same thoughts as they did previously. And that's I'm not advocate. I'm not. I'm not forgiving it. I'm not advocating it. You know, I, I, I hate that I have to tell my brown children how to act when they get stopped by the police in a way that my friends don't have to tell their non-brown children. I hate that. I, and I want, I want, I want change, Dane. I want mm. change more, more than I want anything else. And 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 because I've done the work, I've got the strength. And you can't do this unless. You know, this this is this is not this is a gift. This is above and beyond. You don't you don't have to do this. You get to do this if with whoever you choose and where you choose. All all I feel is that if if we'd had more valuable conversations when people were younger, then we wouldn't have to have conversations with people we feel should know better. But we do. That's where we are. So we can moan about it and 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 wish it was different, or we can actually do something which goes beyond a protest, you know, goes beyond um, a, a, a black square, go, goes beyond that. It, the best thing we can do is never stop having this conversation. And and to also, to, I've got, I just say, I've got lots of friends who kind of feel like, yeah, yeah, the, lots of like, you know, friends who are like, yeah, yeah, it's right, it's right, it's, yeah, we should do something, but are so scared of getting it wrong. And and to those, I would say, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm scared of getting it wrong. But if we both agree that we're, we're not trying to, hurt each other and we give each other space and just try what what could happen that is different from us being scared and retreating or being scared and and attacking could it be different well, I'm, I'm reminded of so many things as you're sharing one is that uh good old winston churchill quote if you're going through hell keep going 
Uh, and, and the reason I think of it is this notion of regardless of which hell you're going through, uh, there's a temptation to stop <laughs> and settle in uh, as if that's going to be some kind of resolve. And, and it's, it's ironic because even as we're talking, uh, here I am, uh, you know, middle-aged white guy talking to his dear friend, uh, Jazz, who's a uh, person of color. Um, and we even had this sidebar before the call where, you, you know, you were very gracious with me, where I just said, honestly, like, help me understand this. I... I don't. For for years in America, I thought, okay, um, African American. At least if I go with African American, that works. But then I started talking about <laughs> my friend Jazz, who is not American and not African, and still felt this tension of like, oh, maybe I'll call her African British or something. And I didn't know. I don't know anything. And then I started talking. And I was like, and then I said, can I just call you black? And and she's like, and and Jazz, you're like, well, I'm actually brown. And I'm like, gah, like I can't get it right. And um. <laughs> I, and then we had this little sidebar conversation and it was so helpful on so many levels, but not because of getting the, the nomenclature right. That's not the point. It was that we just kept talking. Neither of us quit. Yes. Uh, we stayed engaged. And, and I will say this as a white man in America and around a lot of other folks, I, I have a lot of conversations privately with white people who basically are, are in a new kind of self-preservation fear of just... It's a different kind of playing small. They're they're now taking a page of the strategy of playing small, but but to retain their position on the status ladder of like if I just duck and cover, don't say the wrong thing, don't get canceled on Twitter, then this will pass and I'll be back where I want to be. They're, none of it's conscious, but that's what it appears to be going on for them. And and it seems like what I'm hearing you say is this call to resist the craving for closure and to just keep engaging. So two things, and we need to head towards the finish line for this conversation, but uh, the two things. One, will you help clarify um, how to speak as a white uh, person to uh, people of color who are different colors? That would be one thing that would be a gift to all of us. And then the second thing, uh, have the final word on this, na- this, this craving for closure and this call to keep going. Okay, so first, uh, I was in this is in New York in a hotel lobby, big lobby, revolving doors. A guy, a wheelchair user, is trying to get through the revolving doors, gets stuck. I am at the desk with all my friends, and I make this big show. I will help the boy. <laughs> so I stroll towards this guy. I get halfway over, and I think, oh, no, he's going to think, I think, oh, you can't do it because you're in a wheelchair. That's awful. But I've made this big show of moving, so now I'm in the middle, and everyone's looking at me expectantly. And he's now caught my eye, and he's looking at me like, are you coming over to me? And I'm like, oh, God, there's nowhere I can go. This is awful. So I go over to him, and I sort of lean in in a conspiracy <laughs> way, and I go, mate, help me out, right? I have no friends who are wheelchair users and I do not know what to do when I see a guy in a wheelchair stuck in a revolving door. So I am asking you, tell me what is the right course of action? And this guy looks at me and he says, thank you for asking. And then he wheels off. And I'm like, but what should I do? And I'm just like, how unhelpful is that? But what I realized was, it is the fact that I asked. And I asked out of desperation because people only engage in conversations around race through inspiration or desperation. And because when inspiration like peaks our interest, desperation hurts. So desperation is usually the, the way that we get into these conversations. And and it was the fact that he asked. Now I don't represent every brown person on the planet, every every non-white person on the I, I, you know, I don't represent that, I don't represent myself. But I I kind of feel that I I I like truth. 
And, and when, when in the UK we had all these, the forms were like the t- ethnic minority tick box question where it's like white, black, white, black, Asian, other, please specify. And first of all, I'm like, well, I hate that because it's not in alphabetical order. I'm a bit OCD about that. And I hate it because if you're white, you just tick the box and carry on. But I can't tick the box because I'm not white and I'm not black and I'm not Asian. Other sounds like a misthought. Please specify. I don't see how saying, well, my mum reckons she had sex with this guy who was brown, but she's not sure which one. And then I was born, but I've never seen him and I don't know him. And I'm not sure how this helps you work out whether I could flip burgers at McDonald's or not. But I, I can't be obtuse about it because then I've got a chip on my shoulder. So I have to find a way. And what I did is I... I thought, well, let's be specific as possible. So I went to B&Q, which is like Target for you, I guess. And I matched myself up against the B&Q paint chart. And I'm, in fact, Caramel Torp, which is the most specific I can get. So that's what I write. All right, other, Caramel Torp, brackets, please specify according to the paint chart in B&Q. And, 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 and I've got to stress, I'm not American. I'm not in America. And, and when I hear the stories of, of brown people in America who talk about how they react to uh, uh, police officers when they've done nothing wrong, it makes me, I, I feel sick to my stomach. And I think your history, the history you've got, which is so raw, you know, segregation is so raw to you that you, you are, you are, you've got to be kind to yourselves in what you're trying to navigate because you are at the stage where really the only reaction to everything that happens is anger. I just, you know, I, for me, for generations to come, is anger always going to be what we, is that, is that our legacy? Is that our legacy? Anger and fear. Anger and fear. Is that what we leave our kids? And, and I'm not saying that humour is any better, but I am saying that this wanting a solution to a problem, wanting to drive change when you are still hurting, when, when, when people who, non-brown people are afraid to get involved lest they say the wrong thing or get looked on badly. And brown people are accepting of the fact that they aren't, that they aren't going to be believed or trusted. It's abhorrent. It's abhorrent on both sides. So, you know, do, do a Shawshank, either get busy living or get busy dying. I mean, get, give up and lay down and keep your head down and play it safe and say, I, I can't get involved because I might get it wrong. Or stand up. And just have conversations. Stop people in wheelchairs. Get engaged with, if you haven't got any LGBTQ friends, find some. I mean, it's not, like my son will come downstairs and say he can't find his school shoes because he's looked left and right. They've not been stolen by ninjas. He's not looking hard enough. You're not going to find people who are different to you if you hang out in the same places all the time. But if you want conversation, if you want reality, then stand up and say, I might be wrong. I don't know if I've got this right, but help me. Please, could you help me? Could you gift me 30 minutes of your time to tell me what it's like to be different to me, to be outside of my scope of understanding? Gift me that time. Because it's only when that happens that we can actually find the things that we share, the emotions. The story might be different, but the the, the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings are identical. And in realizing that, that's when the potential for change can really happen. And it might not be today, and it might not be this week, and it might not be while you're alive. But don't you want to leave the situation in a better state than when you found it? Don't you want to incrementally improve attitudes? Don't you want to just get curious the next time someone tells you know a racist joke? Just, just ask. I, I would I would decide how much discomfort you're going to be comfortable with, and and we we can all focus on checking our own privilege. Yeah, we can do that. We should definitely do that. But at the same time, the the biggest thing, the most important thing to me, if someone said, "What change do you want?" You know. 
I, I, yes, I don't like the statues. I could do with some statues of brown women who weren't racist. Let's try and even it out a bit. I, I don't like the statues, but my first priority isn't isn't to get rid of the statues. It's it's people's attitudes. I'd much rather engage with people than that would be my my biggest, what could be the biggest change? Because what then, what then, if it wasn't me that called for statues to be removed, but it was the people who had spent time with me and said, you know what, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It, what our, our, It's not reflecting who we want to be, the aspirations we have for ourselves as a nation, as, a, as American people, as a country, as a continent. It's not reflecting who we want to be. That That would be powerful. This was episode one, season five of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to the Habit Course from TellMeYourDreams.com. TMYD provides world-class coaching designed specifically for remote teams. Find out why Forbes magazine called TMYD's Habit Course the online course to master working from home. Sign up today at TellMeYourDreams.com. Thank you.